my hope and my salvation. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you come now in these moments as your word is opened? May you forgive the foolishness of preaching and may your word go forth in its power through the Holy Spirit to encourage your people to build up the saints that they may rejoice further in the hope that you supply them, to strengthen us as we go into the world to be lights in dark places. And if any are here this morning, Lord, as your word goes forth, may it stir their hearts to trust you and love you if they have never done that before, for we long for people to know you, Lord Jesus, for you are everything to us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Let me have a wee swig of water, please. Remembrance Sunday is quite an emotional time. When you're young, when you're a young person, you don't really appreciate your parents' jobs, do you? You go through the phase of thinking your mom and dad are great, and then when you get a bit older and you're a teenager, you think, ah, oh, I can't be bothered listening to it. But as I get older, I appreciate my dad's job even more. Dad was a policeman in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And he was my age when I could, he actually started out in the middle of the Troubles at 18 years of age. And every day he would get up and put on his uniform for the RUC and go out. And by doing that, he was a target. He was a target for himself with terrorists who wanted to kill him and also his family. But his purpose was to go out and try and stop the country from slipping further into anarchy. And that's what he did every day. A purpose to get up, check under the car for bombs, and go out the door and serve. Purpose is an amazing thing, is it not? A purpose to live, a purpose to serve, a purpose in our life to give it meaning. And as I was thinking about Purpose and Remembrance Sunday, I happened to come across this news article, which was amazing. I don't know if any of you saw this news article. There's a lady who was part of, remember the New Atheists many years ago? Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, those guys. Some of you are a certain age where you didn't even know who they were. But a few years ago, there was this wave of new atheism, these militant guys. And one of the people, and it was a lady called, and I'm not going to say her name right, I don't think, but Ayanna Hinsey Ali. If I've said that wrong, do forgive me. Check the news. Ayanna Hinsey Ali. And she was a lady who had converted out of Islam. She'd rejected it, and she'd become a militant, violent atheist. And this week, she put an article up on her website which shocked her followers. She said this, For many years I've been an atheist. I have clung to it as dictates, but it failed me. It failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? What is the meaning and purpose of life? A wee spoiler, she found it in Christianity. What is the meaning and purpose of life? And as I come to the text today, last week we looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet, that powerful and beautiful scene where the Lord of the universe, the King of kings, the infinite majesty, the Holy One, gets down on his knees and washes some stinky feet, including Judas's. And here this week we see that scene played out, the after effects of that scene played out in three scenes. We see betrayal, we see love, and we see hope. Betrayal, hope, and love. And we see purpose in this, and we see meaning in this. We see Judas take purpose in life, which ultimately destroyed him. We see Jesus give hope and purpose, which will save. And we see Peter stumble into that purpose, albeit with a bit of stumbling. But what is our purpose? And what is our meaning? 
As you listen to me this morning, it's an important question to ask. I think it was Aristotle who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And what he meant by that is, what is your purpose in life? What is your aim? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you going? Do you have one? Do you drift with the events of life and the world? What is your purpose and what is your meaning? Well, let's see what the Word of God has to say about that. Firstly, we see betrayal here. The atmosphere around this room is tense. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, and to the disciples, that was a crazy thing to do. And then he's talked about dying and going to the cross. And then verse 21, he starts with a startling statement. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled. Now, this isn't a a polite way of saying Jesus was mildly upset. I overheard in the bus this week, don't you love overhearing things in public transport? I overheard, this is a quote I heard in the bus this week. A guy was talking to his friend, he goes, you know, considering I was fired from a job and I had a funeral this week, it wasn't a bad week, all things considered. (laughs) That's our culture, isn't it? But here, Jesus, when it says he's troubled, the word actually comes from John chapter 5. Remember that scene where there's the pool of Siloam, where the, the, the man who was lying for 35 years and Jesus came and healed him. There's a scene in there that says the waters were stirred. Jesus is stirred up within. He's, he's troubled. It's a real mood changer for the disciples. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testifies. When it says he testifies, he's clear about what he means. Truly, truly. Again, when Jesus says that, he's giving clear, unmistakable truth. I say to you. Imagine the scene here. The table's arranged in a U-shape, we reckon. They're all sitting. Jesus would be at the figurehead. They could all see him. All eyes are in him. Jesus scans the room and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. You could have cut the atmosphere like a knife. And if Jesus had said that to us, if he was here in this room and said to us, one of you betray me, we would look around at each other uncertain of whom he spoke. Isn't it funny? We know who betrays Jesus. But to the disciples, Judas wasn't the obvious candidate. In fact, let me just dwell a minute on the arrangement of the table in this room. This table is in a U-shape. You all know what a U-shape looks like? You shall not perform a U-turn all that. The U-shape, Jesus is at the pinnacle. We reckon John is beside him. John is the disciple whom Jesus loves, which is why he could lean back into his bosom. Actually, that's another thing. How many of you, when we're going for a fellowship lunch, would like to eat it lying on the floor? These guys are lying down on the floor. But you know why they did that? There's symbolism to that. The Passover tradition was, if you were a slave or on the run, you would eat your meal standing or sitting. If you're a free people, you can eat your meal lying down. So they're lying down at the table around here. John is leaning back into Jesus. But the place of honor, and we reckon this is true, the place of honor would have been given to Judas. Because Jesus is able to reach over to him with a morsel of bread. None of the other disciples hear the conversation. It's about to take place apart from John. So Judas has been given the place of honor by Jesus. Isn't that quite a staggering thought? There is no love like the love of Jesus. Even up to the very last minute, Jesus is still reaching out to Judas. Jesus knows how it's going to end, but still his love pursues him. And so this conversation takes place. And see, don't you love Simon Peter? I mean, imagine trying to keep a secret around this guy. Peter mentions verse 24 across to John. Hey, John, he's waving over. John, find out who it is. 
I mean, there is a comedy in this tragedy as well, isn't there? This is life. Don't you love that the universe, the salvation of the world is being worked out here in very human terms? Isn't that great? Oi, John, ask the governor who it is. John leans back and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, and again, Jesus, by doing this, look how Jesus answers this question. He doesn't do it by embarrassing Judas. He doesn't put Judas in the spot. He actually does something which is part of the meal. He takes a bit of bread and gives it to the guest of honor. This is a, this is a token of grace. No, when you give a toast at a wedding and you raise your glass and say to the bride and groom, that's kind of a cultural thing that's happening here. Judas, you're my guest of honor. You're the one I'm giving this last morsel to. Judas, you're my friend. Jesus dips it. Now dwell with me in the text here, verse 26 and 27. Let Put yourself in the scene. Jesus dips the morsel. He gives it across to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. They look at each other and they make eye contact. In a few hours, because of this man's action, both of these will be dead. Judas looks across and Jesus looks across and they make eye contact. The light shone into the darkness. And the darkness rejected it. Up to that very last moment, Jesus' love, even in the face of betrayal, even in the face of the prince of darkness himself, still shines. And the darkness rejected him. Judas is filled with Satan, his own choice, his own desires. Judas wasn't a puppet of some divine providence that he could fatalistically fight against. No, Judas was responsible for his own actions. I don't know what happened in Judas' heart to get him here. I don't know if it's seeing the miracles and walking with Jesus for those three years, living with him, eating with him, fellowship with him. I don't know what broke his heart. I don't know what hardened his heart. But here, friend, is a warning to us. Beware of hardening your heart against Jesus because one day it will be hardened beyond even Jesus' reach. And that's in the Scripture, Hebrews 6. The heart that is hardened is beyond repentance. Judas is the only person I know of in the Bible who got to that stage. Thank you, Lord, that there is still hope. But when the light shines, oh, do not reject it. Do not hide from his love. Jesus this morning here, a friend, if you have not come to him in faith or repentance, he is reaching out to you. You may have cursed his name. You may have decried his church. You may have done all sorts of things like that lady who was the atheist said, all sorts of things in his face. Still, he holds out the hand of love. Whosoever would believe in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. I love, by the way, what she described early on, first thing, and those whom he loved, he loved to the end. And he says this in the shadow of the cross, where he will give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord, that we can be part of the many. Amen. Betrayal. Oh, Judas. There's such a tragedy around his figure. And so he gets up from the table and he goes, and Jesus, not wishing this moment to linger any longer, says, right, Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus was not a victim of Roman genocide. He knew exactly what was happening with the cross, and he sent Judas out. The clock is now counting down to Jesus' death. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Simon Peter, for all his wisdom and all his actions, didn't get this. They thought Judas was a way to pay money for the feast or he was a way to give to the poor. What a joke. John finishes this section. I mean, John himself must have felt the betrayal. Judas was a friend of theirs. 
They were shocked when Judas betrayed them too. You can almost hear the, the hurt in the voice when you, ever you get a description of Jesus in the Gospels, or Judas in the Gospels, how does he described? Judas the traitor. He goes out, and look at that caption there in verse 30, and immediately it was night. Judas goes out into the darkness and is swallowed by the darkness. Judas's purpose in life was to make money. He who criticized the woman who had given the ointment over Jesus for 300 denarii, not who betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Judas had a purpose in life, but it destroyed him. It swallowed him in darkness. He rejected the light of the world, the hope of salvation, and he went to the place prepared for him. Betrayal, heartache, heartbreak. I think we can all feel the tension of this. We can all feel the hurt of this. So how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to this hurt? How does Jesus respond to this betrayal? Jesus uses languages from the Psalms that David used about when his friend betrayed him. He has lifted up his heel against me. How does Jesus respond? How would you respond? Would you be away after Judas to give him a good hiding? When he goes out, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Jesus, what are you talking about? What does it mean to give something glory? What does it mean to glorify? It means to magnify, to, to make the beauty of something clear and apparent, to lift it up. When you have a lovely meal, picture the scene here. You've, you've had the best meal of your life. Probably the fellowship lunch you're about to have. You've had the best meal of your life. What do you do afterwards? Go to sleep. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> do you say to the cook, that was delicious? I hope you do, don't you? That's glorifying the meal, praising its excellencies. Jesus says, because of this betrayal, because of this darkness, because of the slap in the face, the process of God being shown beautiful is about to happen. Isn't that a strange thing? And where will this beauty happen? Where will this love be displayed? Where will this majesty be shown? On the cross. The crucifixion brought glory to the Father. It glorified his wisdom, his faithfulness, his holiness, and his love. It showed him in providing a plan where he could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. It showed him faithful in keeping his promise back in Genesis that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. It showed him holy, requiring the demands of the law to be satisfied by our substitute. It showed him loving and providing such a mediator, such a redeemer, such a friend for us in his son. Jesus was glorified by the crucifixion. It glorified his compassion, his patience, his power. It showed him dying for us, suffering in our stead, allowing himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, buying our redemption, our freedom, our forgiveness with the price of his blood. It showed him patient. Even as he was hanging in agony on the cross, he was testifying to the thief beside him. He didn't die the common death of man, but he substituted himself for such pains and agonies for us. This world he made. He could have summoned legions of angels to set him free and show himself powerful, and yet the very thing that held him to the cross was not the nails but love for us. And by dying, he vanquished the Satan and took away his prey. 
the cross would be the moment of the most beautiful, sublime love and glory in the universe. Do we forget it? I mean, let me borrow again from my brother Alistair Begg. Don't you love Alistair Begg, a grumpy Scotsman? How does this love work? You've heard this before, but some of you maybe heard it for the first time. Think of the thief on the cross. The guy who was hanging up beside Jesus. There was two of them. There was one on the left and one on the right. Both of them at the start of the crucifixion were cursing at him. They were swearing at him. And then something happens where one of the thieves looks at Jesus and says, actually, there's something different about you. Even in this moment of agony as the crowd is jeering you, you're saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Who are you? What is your purpose in life? What is your meaning in life? At some point he says to him, Lord, remember me when you enter into paradise. That must be the shortest prayer, sinner's prayer of the universe. Imagine the scene as he turns up, the thief of the cross turns up in heaven. Now, bear with me in the theology. This is Alistair Begg. If you have any problems, write to him, not me. And he turns up here in heaven and the angel greets him at the door and says to the thief on the cross, what are you doing here? The guy's like, I don't know. The angel's like, what do you mean you don't know? And the thief's like, well, I don't know. I'm here. I made it, but I don't know how. And so the angel does what everyone does in those circumstances. He goes and gets his supervisor and the supervisor angel comes. He asks a few questions. I believe there's some difficulty here. Excuse me, sir, but... Let me ask you a few questions. What is your position in the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> Guys, like I've never heard of it. Okay, well, let's go right to the basics. Uh, what's your view on the inerrancy of Scripture? No idea. He asked the most important question last time. Have you ever been to Lincoln Baptist Church? <laughs> the guy says, never heard of them. And in sheer frustration, the angel says to him, on what basis are you here? The guy says, because the man in the middle cross said I could come. That is the only hope for salvation. That is the only reason why any of us can trust in the mercy of God and his goodness and love, not because of our faith, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done for us. And here he gave his life for ransoms for many. Any wonder we will glorify through the ages. When I stand in glory, I shall see his face my Redeemer, my Savior, and I shall worship him for his salvation that he did out of love for you and me. Verse 33, look how Jesus tenderly draws the disciples to him here. He doesn't address them in harsh terms. He doesn't address them crossly. He says, little children. I'm not going to ask who the oldest person in the room is because I don't want a black eye. But you know the beautiful thing about that? No matter how old you are, you're still a child of God. And he is your heavenly father who loves you and sends Jesus to be your brother who walks alongside you through the linking of the power of the Holy Spirit. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you will seek me. And as I said to the Jewish people, so I say to you now, where I am going, you cannot come. This shows that the death he had to die for us was only something that he could do. We cannot earn our salvation. Don't try. We can't earn forgiveness with God. Don't try, there was only one who could do it, and it was Jesus Christ who came forth and did it for us. Oh, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It is well. You can respond. It is well with my soul. Now, that's the first half of the message. Jesus does something here which is pretty remarkable. 
in the shadow of such love that he has shown to us and which we must receive before this happens. So Jesus has clearly put this out here. He says, you must trust me. You must love me. Peter will make the mistake in a few minutes of trying to do this and short circuit the process. Don't do that. Come to Jesus as you are for forgiveness, ask for repentance, and he will save you and redeem you through faith in him. That's first. But when that happens, when we become born again to the living hope that Christ gives us that we heard about in John 3, when we are his people and he is ours, he gives us a new commandment. And when the word here for commandment, it isn't even, when we think of commandments, we kind of bristle, don't we? I mean, I come from a Celtic people. In Ireland, if you tell us to do something, we'll do the opposite just to spite you. Do you know what it is? I mean, who are red traffic lights to tell me I can't drive? I think you all identify with that, don't you? The word here for commandment isn't quite like that. Yes, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. If he tells us to do something, we want to do it in obedience to him, but because we love him. There's a difference. The law bids me do and die. The gospel gives me wings that I might fly. Do you see the difference there? This isn't like Moses coming down from the mountain saying, do this. This is Jesus saying, because of what has happened to you, now live in a new way through the power I give you. And this is a new commandment. I give you that you love one another. Now you may say, well, that's not very new. I mean, Leviticus 18 is talking about that. There's books of the Bible that talk about love one another. True. But look what he does there at the end of the verse. Love one another just as I have loved you. He takes an old commandment, picks it up, and shows the full extent of it. Love one another just as I have loved you. Now, if you're not sitting there this morning going, wow, have we grasped that? This is the Jesus who washed Judas' feet in the face of betrayal. This is the Jesus who always spoke truth. Love and truth do go together. The two can be never separate. If you have all love and no truth, it'll dissolve into sentiment. If you have truth and no love, it'll dissolve into harshness. The two must be together. He always spoke truth, but he never did it out of nastiness or pettiness. He was never harsh and condemnatory. He loved and those he loved to the end. I mean, the disciples blessed them. Would you love them? I mean, Peter's bouncing all around the place with his mouth going off. Judas has just betrayed you. John is the young lad who's a lovely lad, but he runs away naked, we reckon, in the garden when the soldiers come. You've got terrorists. You've got a tax collector. I mean, who's going to love a tax collector? Sorry if anyone here works for HMRC. We do love you. You're very welcome to LBC. Who's going to love the Pharisees? When Jesus went to the cross, he died for them too, if they would trust him, as some later did. He's going to love the Roman soldiers who crucified him, yet one stood at the foot of the cross and said, surely this is the Son of God. J.C. Ryle has this quote. J.C. Ryle was a man who was fierce for the truth, but this quote may surprise you. It surprised me. Let us note what a heavy passage this is, what it pronounces upon sectarianism, Bigotry, narrow-mindedness, party spirit, strife, bitterness, needless controversy between Christian and Christian. Let us note how far from satisfactory is the state of those who are content with sound doctrine opinions and are orthodox in the fuse of the gospel, yet in their daily life they give way to ill temper, ill nature, malice, envy, squabbling, bickering, grumpiness, snappish language, 
crossness of word and manner. Such persons, whether they know it or not, are daily proclaiming that they are not Christ's disciples. Now, this hit me. It is nonsense to talk about justification, regeneration, election, conversion, and the uselessness of works unless people can see in us practical Christian love. Now, talk about getting hit between the eyes. But that's exactly what Jesus says here. A new commandment I give you, do you love one another? By this, all people, meaning the world, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is the qualifying mark of a Christian? To love like Jesus loved. In the early church in the second century, do you know, the Christians were ridiculed for the first three centuries of the early church. There was no state support. There was no Constantine settlement. The Christians were persecuted constantly by the Romans, by the Jewish people. They had a really hard time. And do you know the biggest criticism of the church in those days? This is recorded in writings. It wasn't that all oh, these Christians go around preaching strange doctrines. They were accused of that. These Christians go around doing this. They were accused of that. The greatest criticism they got was see how the Christians love one another. Imagine the front page of the Daily Mail saying that. Scandal! Christians love one another. Praise God. Sorry if anyone reads the Daily Mail as well. <laughs> one of the emperors... We have this letter where he said, actually, as much as I detest the doctrine of Christians, as much as I disagree with their practices, my, how they love each other. And how they look after our poor and sick who we can't be bothered looking after. I know when preaching this that I feel the standard. I know that I do not love like Jesus does. I have received his love and I pray it transforms me, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, that I'd be rooted and grounded in that love and it would transform me. But I stumble and fall. So let me close with a bit of hope. We've had betrayal. We've had love. Our last section, which is always my sort of section, you'll be pleased to hear, is hope. Verse 38. Jesus, after giving this remarkable challenge, this remarkable call, who speaks up first? Simon Peter. Don't you love Simon Peter? I really, see when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to give him a big hug and say, Peter, I'm sorry for all the things I said about you, but you're a great guy. Peter completely missing the point of the whole thing. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered again, reminding him, where I'm going now, you cannot follow me. The work I will do on the cross, laying down my life, is once and for all, and only I can do it. Only I can be the Savior of the world. John 14 next week, only Jesus could be the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. But you will follow me afterwards. Once that's happened to you, Peter, you will have a mission. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you now. Beautiful words, isn't it? Undoubtedly, Peter meant them. Lord, I will lay down my life for you. I love you. Peter had that zeal and that passion. Here we have misguided devotion, but true devotion. Here we have purpose. His purpose was to love Jesus and to follow him, even though he went about it the wrong way. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted him as your Savior and Lord, you've repented your sins and you're following him, the Spirit is testifying within you. You are a child of God. You're his, and he loves you, and you're secured by his death on the cross. We press on to make it our goal, not because we have to, but because Jesus Christ has made us his own. So you are saved and redeemed by grace. You operate in that gracious love of God, but you will stumble and fall. You will get it wrong. You will say an unkind word to the person who just cut you up on the Lincoln Bypass. 
There's my confession for the day. We cannot be as perfect as Jesus. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're called to strive to be like him, to run towards him in love. The New Testament is littered with examples of saying, outdo each other in love. Strive. Imagine having a competition in the church to see who could love somebody the most. For some reason in my previous church, the Baptist Union of Scotland used to send us guys who are, anyone who was interested in exploring ministry, I don't know why they sent them to us, I don't know if it's because if they survived us, they could survive anything, but um, we used to get these people come along to train for ministry, and the Baptist Union asked me to sort of have a look over them, which is really bizarre, but anyway, and the ones I knew would make it were the ones I could see who loved the Lord, took his word seriously, and you would watch them go into a room of people. I used to love watching them, and they'd go into a room of people, and they would find the person nobody else was talking to, and they'd sit down and talk to them. They'd be doing the dishes when everyone else had left the building. They would be cleaning toilets. They would have this wonderful ability to get themselves into so much trouble that I didn't have to sort out, but it was great. They'd go off and visit folk. They would, they would set things up. They would cause all sorts of mayhem, and I, my deacons used to come to me and say, Daniel, would you sort them out? And I would say, oh, sure, isn't it wonderful? which didn't really seem to appease them very much. Uh, but by the time my ministry ended, one of the deacons cut to me and says, that lot's being wonderful again. <laughs> but they had this spark of love. Genuine love in the heart is outgoing. If you love somebody, here's a wee bit of romance for you to spice things up. If you love somebody, you're active in that love, aren't you? You may be shy, you may be bashful, but, but the object of your affections causes you to do things you would never do. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful it is to me. Love beyond all human comprehension. Love of God in Christ, how can it be? Love that reaches from the furthest realms of glory just to see of a sinful soul like me. A love which fills us and impels us out in action. I'm an easily amused person. How many of you are easily amused? I love, how many of you love water features? I love water features. What car? Have I been to Burley? No. Thank you, Carl. There we go. I love preaching at LBC. I love water features. And one of the water features that amuses me, you know those buckets that you fill up with water? They're really exciting. So you fill up one bucket and it fills up and it pours into the other bucket and it fills up. Brilliant, isn't it? I could be amused for hours in that. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we're all buckets. Jesus fills us with his love. And we need to receive that love. Even though we're sinners, Christ died for us. His love is constant for us. It doesn't alter, it doesn't change. It flows every day, straight from the throne room of heaven. I love saying to congregations, Jesus loves you. Do you believe that? Receive that love. Let it fill you up. But when it fills you up, let it flow out of you. Don't try and put a lid on it. Don't try and close it down because you'll, you'll blow up. Let it flow out in dollars. And as he continually fills us and feeds us, that love will flow out of us into this congregation. Today at the fellowship lunch, will you go and sit with somebody you've never sat with before and talk to them? If you're a brother and sister in Christ, who knows what opportunities God could open? Will you pray for somebody today you've never prayed for before? Will you cross the aisle to that difficult person who has hurt you and you have hurt them and attempt to bring the Lord's reconciliation?
Let his love fill you and let that love flow out of you. And this, as this church comes together and we're known, and we are not, this is, when I say these things, I, it's a testimony to myself. We all are, don't we? So that's what I say when I mean this. May we be known. Oh, look at them Lincoln Baptist folk. They're a bit crazy. But my, how they love each other and how they love us. And as that witness flows out into this area, yes, we'll have difficulties. Yes, we'll have hard times. Yes, we'll have times we'll say, Lord, thank you that you love them because I'm really struggling and want to strangle them. And it's okay to pray that. As that love flows out, the Lord will do something beautiful in our midst. So we have betrayal. And the purpose of Judas's life was himself. If your purpose is yourself, you will never find fulfillment. And the reason I can say that with all qualification is you were not made to worship yourself. You were not made for yourself to be the focus of all your activities. You were made for something more. You were made to show the beauty of God's love in fellowship with other people united around Jesus Christ. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? You cannot do it. Maybe one day you will. In fact, one day you did lay down your life for me. But now, truly, truly, I say to you, you will betray me three times. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas betrayed him. Peter betrayed him. Judas was lost. Peter was forgiven. Why the difference? Judas never loved Jesus never trusted him, rejected him. When that morsel was given to him, he rejected the light. Peter, though he stumbled and fell and tripped and banged his toe, loved him. There's hope. Friend, this morning I pray that you will feel that call of Jesus to love each other and love him. I feel it myself, and I know that I'm like Peter, that I stumble and fall, but I also know this, that he will continue his work in me, not because of me, but because of who he is. There is hope, brothers and sisters. Today could be the start of something new in our lives through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that what was off me and was not helpful would fall to the wayside. We thank you for your word contain for us in the scriptures. We thank you for the gospel of John, that beautiful revelation and picture of you, Lord. We thank you in the midst of the sea of betrayal, of hurt, of false hopes, of misunderstandings, your light shines so bright. We thank you that you took on human flesh, fully God, truly God, and truly man, so that you understand us. So we come before you this morning, Lord, and we ask for that fresh outpouring of your love upon those of us, your people. That we would be marked in our own individual lives by the love of Christ in gospel word and deed. That we would be marked as your people, Lord Jesus. Forgive us when we stumble. Forgive us when the old nature flares out at times. And we thank you, as John tells us later on, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. So do forgive us where we've fallen short. But impel us on to run the race, to show the beauty of Christ to those around us, to tell other poor beggars there is bread here. May this fellowship be marked by that powerful love. May we do something here that brings glory and honor to your name in this world of apathy, 
in this world of indifference, in this world of hatred and harshness, may your powerful love show forth. And again, Lord, if there's any here who do not know you, I pray that they will have heard of you and what they have heard, you will minister to their hearts through the Holy Spirit until they trust in you, for you will redeem and save. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's the worship team.